Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the of the Sargassum Podcast, brought to you by Florida International University, uh, Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center. And I would uh, want to just welcome you all here today. And all we got Fran hosting with us today, as well as Florence, which is also the town I'm in today. And how are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Um, yesterday I got to go swimming again. Um, we had a bit of a brown tide lately, but it's been clearing up here in Playa. So the end of sargassum season is near, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing good. And um, how are you, Florence? I'm fine, thank you. In uh, July and August, I returned home uh, to Brittany and to work on the data for my field work on the social impacts of uh, sargassum in Marie-Galante, in uh, Guadeloupe. And uh, in early September, I was uh, sailing near the coast of, in Brittany. Um, I just uh, want, uh, I would like to apologize to our guests and uh, listeners right away, uh, right now, um, as this is the first time uh, I have done the Sargassum podcast in English. And uh, you, Robbie, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm recovering from that little accident I had. I can scratch the top of my head now. It's something I couldn't do just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, and all that, really excited about the uh, progress of the project last summer. And we're about to present on Friday and then, uh, in the annual congress of the Las Ciudad Mesoamericana para Biología y Conservación. We're going to uh, present our book that we just recently used in uh, Quintana Roo for our educational materials, and we're really excited about that. And, uh, but enough about us. We've got some couple of interesting people today. And all we have uh, Judith Rosalyn, and she's a biologist and oceanographer with extensive experience in fisheries management and ecology and marine spatial management and evaluation of marine protected areas and fishery stock assessment and and just a whole lot of really cool stuff. She has a PhD from the School of Marine and Technology at the University of Mass at Dartmouth and worked her postdoc as a postdoc fellow at the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And um, I think that's a pretty, pretty cold place for somebody from uh, Mexico City to, <laughs> to be at myself. Uh, I, I don't even like it up there, but she's currently the lead researcher at the National Council for Science and Technology in Conocyte. And all her uh, international background oceanographic studies is um, both in Mexico and the USA makes it possible to understand, develop, and coordinate complex marine co-management and policy projects between the U.S. and Latin American countries. We also have somebody from down south in Florida, uh, Justin Suka. He's a fish ecologist at the Cooperative Institute for Marine and Atmospheric Research in Honolulu, Hawaii. His research includes studies on the diet and growth of fish, but he, he typically focuses on understanding and predicting distribution abundance of fisheries relevant species. He got involved with this project because he grew up in Florida and had experienced sargassum inundation events in his high school and college years, and this also provided an opportunity to connect with the fishing communities he grew up around. We also have Laura McAdam Otto, and she's an anthropologist at the Gath uh, University in Frankfurt, Germany. Her work focuses on governance practices in the field of both forced migration and anthropogenic environmental change. Her research and teaching is located at the interface of anthropology, cultural studies, 
science and technology studies. And she sounds like she's working at the same exact spot I'm located because we're kind of the nexus of those things as well. But together, they worked on a project, Binational Local Knowledge of Sargassum Events, which was supported by the U.S. Department of State through the Partners of the America grant program. The objective of this project in particular was to document local knowledge of coastal communities in Mexico, Quintana Roo specifically, and the U.S. Florida, state of Florida, regarding the atypical influxes of sargassum. And so we got a lot of really neat people here today. And uh, I think we're going to go get started with uh, Francesca in the first question. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. It's really nice to have you. And our first question that we ask to all our guests is, we want to know what sargassum is to you, um, to you personally. So if I, each of you could tell us a bit what sargassum is to you, that would be fantastic. Um, well, thank you everyone for that. Uh, thank you, Robbie, for that introduction. And thank you everyone for inviting us to, to this. Uh, we're very excited to be here. Um, so I'll be very brief. Uh, I think sargassum for me right now is my, the subject of my research. And personally, I see it as a very important proof of climate change. I think um, it's just something that we can see that is there that started like 10, well, a little bit more than 10 years ago, 13 years ago almost. And um, I think it's something that you know, the earth is telling us things are changing and um, things are changing because you as humans are doing a lot of things to, <laughs> to change what is going on in, in the world. So, um, and also uh, as we're going to talk about this project, for me, uh, it's something that has a huge social impact. So it's not something environmental or ecological uh it's also something that is affecting people um and i think this is one of the most important things that we're trying to uh say with our project so thank you yeah i can go next well thank you everybody for having us tonight and while i thought about the question and for me sargassum really is many things different things and i think that's also what we have shown with our project. Um, for me personally, as an anthropologist, I'm interested in coastal transformations. And I always wonder what happens when a new actor arrives on shore. And viewing sargassum like that really, well, I find it so fascinating that this algae, what it generates and how it mobilizes so many different people and actors on the ground, how it brings together different people, for example, hoteliers and scientists are now working closely together, which I find um, really, really fascinating. And while on a personal level, um, West Sargassum has become something that I'm thinking about every day now. Um, I think about it, I talk about it, I write about it. So it has become a very essential part of my everyday life. Like there's no day without Sargassum anymore. Um, and of course, it has brought me also in touch with great people. Well, some of some of them are here tonight with me, but that of course also applies very much to the people in the field I work with and who are willing to share their sargassum stories and experiences with me. So that has been a very, 
well, personally enriching journey over the past uh, three and a half years for me, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, and for me, and again, thank you everybody for uh, having us on here again. Um, I, Sargassum for me, growing up was always fish habitat. Um, so I'm a fish ecologist, so my perspective is probably a bit different <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I also grew up in Florida fishing off of Sargassum and always noticing that it was a habitat for larval fish and effectively a nursery offshore. Uh, and that kind of changed. So that's where it means multiple things, I would say, to me as well. Once it got started to become uh, a problem onshore and inundating shorelines uh, around Miami when I was an undergraduate. And then I started seeing it as, uh, while it was still a habitat offshore, this potential problem and that explosion of sargassum uh, later on in my college years was really uh, an interesting change to my perspective on this on this organism that was nothing but beneficial in my eyes to suddenly something that could actually cause a problem for people. Even the fishers that use it to fish offshore uh, can lead to the same exact species being a real problem when they're just trying to, to deal with shoreside issues. Thank you for this diversity of um, um, point of view uh, about sargassum. I have a second question. Um, Tell us a bit about your project and the activities you did under it. Sure. Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Florence. Okay, so the idea of this project came because we know a lot about sarcasm from, you know, the academic knowledge, the scientific knowledge, and we have make a lot of advancements in what we know about this. But there are still a lot of unanswering questions about this topic. So in order to fill a little bit the gaps of these unanswered questions, or at least try to um, focus the research better in places where we need answers, uh, we need to use other type of knowledge. So this other type of knowledge can come from, you know, the people that live in the affected areas. And this knowledge is based on day-to-day you know, living with the problem, experiencing the problem, having to face the problem in different ways. So this type of knowledge is known as local ecological knowledge or local knowledge. Uh, and that's what we are trying to understand a little bit more with this, with this project. So um, we know that using the local ecological knowledge and the academic knowledge in any type of scientific project that has to do with decision making and that decision makers are going to take a look to produce you know policies or management decisions so the amalgamation of these two, two, two types of knowledge uh, increases the eff effectiveness of of the decision making process and um it's absolutely needed to you know provide more legitimate legitimacy in the in this decision making process so as robbie was saying uh the objective of this project was to compile and document local knowledge of native uh, indigenous and other local members of two communities so two big communities one in quintana roo and one in, well, in Quintana Roo, Mexico, and one in Florida in the US. 
we did that to uh with different reasons but some of these reasons were to uh, facilitate the exchange of knowledge and experiences among local communities of very different countries um also we wanted to incorporate that local knowledge into what we know from the traditional western science from the scientific knowledge uh, integrate that local knowledge into like i said into the decision making process of coastal zone management and also enhance international cooperation um, to address a, a shared social environmental challenge that these two, co these two countries are facing. So um, especially uh, what we did in this project was to do um, a lot of interviews and workshops with the communities of these two countries. Uh, we did on-site interviews in, uh, especially in the key, uh, uh, Florida Keys area. Uh, Justin uh, did those interviews, so I'm pretty sure Justin is going to talk about his experience in Florida doing these interviews in a little bit. Uh, also for, you know, the all the Florida area, we did an online shop, uh, on, online workshop where we invited a lot of um, stakeholders. So we have, you know, people from um, uh, fishermen, from NGOs, from, um, uh, you know, the, the civil society, from the business, in, the business uh, from different types of uh, stakeholders invited to these workshops. Uh, then in Mexico, we did also on-site interview those were led by uh, Laura and I. Uh, so uh, I think it's also going to be very interesting to hear about uh, the experience that Laura has from, from those interviews. And we also did uh, a small on-site workshop with the Mayan community in Felipe Carrillo Puerto. Uh, th that was very interesting. I, I led that uh, with another colleague. And um, so all the information that we got that we got from those workshops and interviews was processed, analyzed, and summarized. Um, we produce um, with that information we produce a leaflet that was translated in English, Spanish, and Maya. Uh, if any of our listening listeners wants to have a copy of that um, leaflet, please shoot me an email. And I will uh, gladly share that with you. I think it contains very nice information in a way that everyone can learn about this topic. And also we are currently working on a scientific paper and also on a, an outreaching paper. Uh, so we can basically share the results of this uh, interesting project with, with everyone. And uh, we recently have a, another meeting with all the participants uh, of both countries to share the results and, and ask for feedback of the whole process. So um, I think that's a little bit of what we did. Um, I will probably say what we found for a later question, but um, that's, that's basically what we did. Very nice. Um, were you working with Marco? In Cayo Puerto, or who were you working with there? Uh, in where? In Cayo Puerto. You were working with Marco, or who were you working with? Oh, 
No, I was working uh, with the community of the Instituto, um, uh, what one was one of the universities there. Uh, so we did the, the workshop in the university there and the people, the community that was invited was from the from the university community, but they are they are all Maya. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah. Well, well, the thing I want to know is, is as what is the, the what were the difference differences in experiences with uh, sargassum? Were they different or similar? Your experiences between Quintana Roo and Florida. And uh, how about how about maybe Laura and, and Justin take that one? Yeah, and Laura, I think both of them can answer very nicely this question. Excellent. Um, I'm happy to start. Um, so I was only doing interviews explicitly in Florida, so I don't have the firsthand experience that Laura does for Quintana Roo. But uh, in Florida, I thought it was interesting um, in terms of timing of when we went there and also kind of diversity of who felt sargassum was a problem. Um, so the interviews were conducted in winter, which is not the primary sargassum inundation season. So I think there's probably a little bit of out of sight, out of mind um, mentality there. And also it hasn't really experienced the same level of inundation that I think a lot of, of coastal Mexico has experienced. Um, another interesting thing about conducting those interviews in the Florida Keys, if those of you have spent a lot of time in South Florida and the Florida Keys know that it's uh, a place that's highly transient and often gets people moving there from other places. So finding people who have a long-term experience with sargassum in the environment can often be difficult. Um, and so that was one of the reasons I wound up targeting fishers, um, both because they have a, a stake in the environmental impact of sargassum, but also those tend to be the people who had actually lived and grown, grown up around that area. Um, and in their case, they were had a a different view basically where they fished and what timing they're inter interacting with the sargassum. So there, there was definitely uh, the appreciation that sargassum is really important offshore, uh, but it could be really much of a problem when it again gets inshore. Even those offshore fishers who recognize that it's an important part of the ecosystem for the fish that they are fishing for have started to notice that it was being impossible to bring boats into the harbor. Um, it made just like plowing through Quite difficult. They are also even reporting in cases larger increases of dead sargassum that just weren't holding fish offshore like they typically did. Um, so I thought that was an interesting feedback there. Um, but a lot of the general consensus I got um, from my interpretation of what people were saying is that it's a natural part of the ecosystem. So there was a bit of a hesitancy to do much about it. Um, I think because of the knowledge of how important it can be while it's actually offshore and not inundating the coast. Um, that wasn't as much the case, I think, for those who were really focused on resort-style beaches. Um, in that case, there was a problem. They wanted to get rid of it. Um, and so that was been interesting. There was definitely a difference in stakeholders. But even within those stakeholders, there was another interesting divide of kind of those who worked in those industries, but had actually still grown up in the Florida Keys or around Florida versus those who were, I think, more in, in, interested and focused on the industry side of um, tourism. Because uh, even talking to some people in the industry that were 
kind of had grown up around Florida, they recognized it was a problem for their actual, their services uh, in tourism, but they again, still felt like it was a natural part of the ecosystem. So a bit of a long-winded answer, but it felt kind of like this interesting push-pull between a little bit between sectors and this little bit of a acknowledgement that it's a big problem, but it's still a hesitancy to really want to put in some industrial scale removal and process uh, for sargassum. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Well, I'm happy to to add to what you've just said. Um, I think what what I found also very interesting in in when we compared the data that we have between Mexico and the United States was that in the United States, more people viewed sargassum to be an opportunity. So that was 31% of our interlocutors in Florida said, yeah, it's an opportunity, whereas only 17% of our Mexican research participants viewed sargassum to be an opportunity. And I can only guess why maybe it's direct well it has to do with an entrepreneurial spirit um that's probably very much associated with the united states oftentimes when i think about my field work in mexico many people who try to invest in these businesses are from the united states so there certainly is this connection between businesses and americans in the context of sargassum maybe it also has to do with the fact that well there are a lot of great um, projects and businesses that are Mexican-led, but people on the ground also know how difficult it is to turn it into a business case, um, how to, well, scale it properly, how to really make a living out of that. So maybe they viewed it as an opportunity at, at first, and now the enthusiasm is, is already going down a little. That's, I think, well, it was striking um, in our data, I guess. And what I also sense, um, was that many people we've talked to mentioned that they used to play with sargassum when they were children. So I think that really also relates to what Justin just said. It it has so many different meanings and it has changed its meaning over time. And the project that we've conducted together really reveals like longer term histories and stories and relationships people have with sargassum. Now everybody's really focused on this contemporary problem with the massive beaching events, but there's a longer story to that. And I think that was really revealing in, in both countries um, that people also said, but I, when I was a kid, I used to play with it. And they really emphasized the different relationship that, that they used to have. Um, and of course, in, in Mexico, many people were really concerned with the tourism industry, the tourism sector, um, tourists start complaining about it online. Uh, and on site, um, and it's really, really difficult to remove all the sargassum from the beaches, and that again has impact. So people were at the same time worried about the future of the tourism industry, but only about the future of of their own livelihoods along the Mexican coast. Um, so that what that I think is really important um, for the Mexican case. If- yeah, if you don't mind, I just to add and affirm some things that Laura just said from personal observation in Florida. The uh, hesitancy with tourists component was definitely there. I think that what led to difficulty getting actually interviews and discussions from people in these larger scale chains, basically operations uh, in terms of the hotel industries and things of the like. Um, I think it was they don't want to advertise this problem any more than it already 
kind of is online from some reviewers. Um, but another thing that probably a more relevant point to again, affirm what Laura just said, uh, I think that entrepreneurial spirit and that belief in the private sector is particularly strong in Florida. So in the United States, that's probably generally true. Um, but culturally the keys are definitely fairly connected to the American South. Um, and so I think that kind of skepticism of rolling a large government program into trying to help this, um, will be particularly strong in that area. And you kind of got the inkling of that, um, and as opposed, they would rather it kind of be done through the private sector. So anyway, it's just an interesting context that it's, it goes beyond, I think, just being in the United States. It's also kind of a, something that could be very specific to the region of the United States where this problem's happening. Well, yeah, and also, yeah. Oh. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, Judith, you said in the beginning that for you, sargassum is also a very visible form of climate change. And what we've also heard a couple of times was that sargassum is mother nature's revenge for us mm -hmm. humans misbehaving on earth, over exploiting um, resources, not treating nature well. Um, and it was also a repeating um, well topic in, in, in the conversations that we've had. Yeah, and I also wanted to just add to this uh, one thing that was interesting to me about the differences between uh, the interviews in, in, in Florida and, and, and Quintana Roo. And I don't know if that's something cultural. I, I, I don't know what, what, is, what is that. But the time that people take to answers, answer these questionnaires was very different. In US, uh, I think, uh, Justin can say that talking for 40 minutes was a very, very long uh, interview. Uh, mostly in Florida, the interviews were about 10, 15 minutes mo uh, at, at most. While in Mexico, people could talk for hours. <laughs> so we had like interviews uh, three or four hours long. And um, I mean, it was really nice because we could hear a lot of you know, experiences and, and, and uh, stories that people have to tell. So I think just, I, I, I just want to put that there because I, I thought it was something interesting, uh, the time that people take to uh, answer questions in, um, in both countries. So that's super interesting to hear. I have lived in Florida before there was sargassum and now I live in Quintana Roo. And I find it especially interesting what you said about the entrepreneurial spirit and that it's stronger in Florida than Quintana Roo, because to me, from what I see and what I know about other islands and also Florida is that we have probably the most entrepreneurs in Sargassum here in Quintana Roo than anywhere else. We have so many different firms who are doing stuff. But as you said, maybe they they know the hurdles and they know it's not that easy to actually scale it up. And also from what I know is that most locals are not aware of these, these companies or have very little awareness that these companies exist. So they may not even know what is being done in Quintana Roo in terms of making products. I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you focus on Mexico and Florida here. 
But of course, the region that is impacted is much bigger. And it's an interregional problem, but also very territory specific, as you showed, that different territories, they think differently about this. So have you thought about expanding this research to include other places or have you had exchanges with either scientists or with locals or politicians from other places to see how the perception is different in Quintana Roo and um, Florida compared to other places in the Caribbean? Yeah, um, so I work for uh, the government here in Mexico. I work for CONACYT and in CONACYT, one of our main, uh, you know, lines of work is to try to enhance uh, international collaboration to, you know, face this phenomenon in a, um, in a very holistic way, in a very integral way. And, um, so yes, uh, because we got, because of that, we are always trying to uh, reach other uh, governments and and other countries to to um, you know to try to make research together. Uh, however, this project obviously just uh, this project took place this year. Uh, we started with this project at the very beginning of the year, January. Uh, basically, we started with the interviews and and so on. Uh, so we are just uh, coming up with the results of of, of this research. Um, uh, as 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 much as we know, this is the first kind of work that it's trying to understand the local knowledge for different countries in this topic. Uh, so obviously, we would love to. Uh, Try to work with more communities in other countries, and and you know starting making these comparisons, and also uh, hear about the the stories that people have to tell in other countries. Because I'm pretty sure uh, we're going to find uh, very interesting differences and similarities uh, between countries in the region that are affected by by this. Uh, well, however, like any. Uh, project we are completely depending on funding and time and uh, other projects that uh, you know happen to come in our way so yeah I mean we will try to uh, keep on going with this project in the future but uh, at this point we we are still dependent on, on funding okay so um, yes it's uh, really interesting it sounds uh, really interesting to me because uh, I'm really interested in um, what you say because uh, uh, with a Mexican anthropologist that maybe uh, you know uh, called uh, Julia Fraga, uh, we have uh, started an international uh, collaboration and uh, presented uh, two, uh, three years ago. Uh, we present a first panel at the Marie Colloquium, Marie Seminar um, at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, about uh, the topic uh, sargassum and uh, the social impact of uh, sargassum in uh, uh, Lesser Antilles, in uh, Martinique and Guadeloupe, and uh, in uh, Mexico. And uh, moreover, uh, your data uh, are close to mine. So it's really interesting for me to exchange with you uh, because I found I have some data 
uh, on Martinique and uh, Guadeloupe about, uh, for example, the uh, symptom of uh, the, the sargassum as a symptom of a climate change or of a revenge uh, of, the, of the sea. I would like to ask a question to Judith. Um, did you ever met or worked before with a social scientist? And uh, do the social scientists work with a biologist? And um, it's a question about uh, your interdisciplinary Yeah, um, well, we are learning that we can uh, exchange information in this group. <laughs> so that's very nice. And this, I, I just want to say that I think that's what science is about. You know, uh, finding other people that are doing similar things that you are doing and try to collaborate. And um, that's exactly what I think we try to do with this uh, project. Uh, this project, obviously, by its nature, it's very complex. The topic of sargassum is very complex. So we needed, you know, specialists in biology, in ecology, and environmental sciences. It's also a very political issue. So we needed a political science expert. Uh, and obviously, because we are dealing with local knowledge, we needed, you know, a social scientists and anthropologists like Laura on board uh, to be sure that we understand uh, me as a biologist, and I can also probably speak uh, uh, by um, uh, speak on, on behalf of Justin as we are biologists, our knowledge of social science and, and how to ask questions and how to deal with people directly, it's limited and it's not as, it's not easy at all. And you need a lot of experience to do it correctly. That's why you need the experience of a social scientist, of, a, of an anthropologist. So that's, that's why we know from the very beginning of this project that we needed to construct this multidisciplinary team in order to succeed and have a good and have a good project um so yeah i mean probably the first month of our work with this project was to put together this amazing team of people uh here we have laura and justin like i said we also have uh political science on board and oceanographers and biologists and so it was it was a really nice team to work with um and yes i did this before uh, my postdoc in alaska uh was about integrated ecosystem assessment uh to implement an integrated ecosystem assessment in the gulf of alaska so obviously that was also a very complex task uh that involved to work with a lot of uh different disciplines so in there, in that project, I was in charge of constructing socio-ecological models and operationalize them uh, to understand uh, all these links between the biology of fishery, fisheries there and the ecology and the economy and the social uh, aspects of these fisheries. So, I mean, the... Um, in that group, we also have a, an experts in social science uh, uh, that they were amazing to work with, and um, obviously, this 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 project have a lot of in common, uh, as you can as you can as you can see. 
Yeah, Florence, um, to answer your question, um, well, I have not collaborated with natural scientists before. I studied biology for one semester, but that's a really long time ago. Um, so I do have this general interest in that discipline too. Um, but like collaborating on, on this level um, and with such a big group was completely new. And I think, well, what what Judith said, I think is, is true. And in, in working together, like having all this knowledge about the ecology and the ecosystem and so on and so forth, really also helped us like formulating topics that, that are of interest to the communities that are affected, uh, for example, fishermen. And then maybe I brought in some ideas of how to phrase questions so that we can stimulate narration instead of having like yes or no answers and trying to understand the stories better. And I think in, in working together in, in such a way was really productive. And I think what really made our group uh, working together well was, well, we, we met oftentimes online. Um, so that, that was certainly one case. I think the exchange was really close. And then in my understanding, everybody treated the other persons and disciplines with a lot of respect and interest. Um, so it really was not about fighting for one's own discipline or me trying to let us write an anthropological paper or something, hey, not if, like imposing on others, but we really tried to find like a common ground everybody, everybody can live with and everybody is happy with. And I think that was an important aspect of of this type of collaboration that we've had, like really showing interest in the other in other people's way ways of thinking. A um, <clears throat> a wise man once said that as scientists we will be um, not be able to contribute in a meaningful way to fisheries management policies if we are unaware of the needs of the local fishermen and take these things into consideration, and. Uh, and I, I think I was kind of hearing a little bit of that there. We we need to you know be pay more attention. I and I think I've heard that theme throughout what we're talking about today. And I'm just wanted to you know let you know we're paying attention. Um, that being said, after the workshops you created, Judith, uh, you, you you created the information flyer about sargassum and Maya, and Spanish and English. And um, what led to this, and and why do you think this resource is needed? Yeah, um, well, the uh, like you said at the beginning, this project was funded by Partners of America that works with the uh, Department of State of the United States. And these uh, Partners of America uh, funds projects, uh, not necessarily scientific projects, but pro projects that have an impact on uh, communities that have a lot of uh, public service significance. So that's that's the objective of this fundings in the core. It's not about funding something, you know, uh, scientific study. So obviously, from the very beginning of the conception of this work, we needed to think about how we can return something to the communities that we were going to to interview. Um, and this is something that I just have to uh, give us an advice to everyone who is trying to do this type of work. When you are extracting or getting getting knowledge from these communities you need to give something back i mean that's just a re re reciprocity issue uh, that you need to take in account 
with this type of uh, with this type of work. So um, one of the things that we thought we could achieve that that we could achieve that public uh, service significance with this project was to produce, you know, um, something that could show what we learn about, uh, you know, what we learn about this local knowledge, produce something that was available to everyone. And that was something that was available in different language because of us, we were working with two countries, United States and Mexico. We needed to produce at least, you know, Spanish and English because not everyone in Mexico will speak English and vice versa. And also every community has the right to learn things in their own language. So for the Mayan communities that we interview, they have the right to learn about sargasso in Maya. And that's something that it could be very nice to, uh, to them to see that someone is interesting and putting effort in translating this material in, into, their, uh, into their own language. So um, I think those were the reasons we thought it was very important to put as a priority to give back something to the communities that gave us, provide us this, this amazing knowledge. Thank you. I'm, I have a question to um, Laura. I don't know if you, uh, I have to say, Laura or Laura? Well, ev everything works, I think. Uh, Laura, the question. German pronunciation, <laughs> Laura would probably be okay. more American. Laura would probably be the French version. So I respond to whatever you call me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. So that's... Is, I have another question <laughs> um, because as I'm an anthropologist myself, I'm very interested about the methodology in your field. And um, as you are from a German university, but working on an international team, I would like to know if you have a precise protocol in your interviews uh, with the residents uh, more specifically uh, in France, for example, in order to conduct a social science research, we need to make our data non-identifying. Do you have the same? Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for that question, which really touches upon questions of research ethics, I think. And that is something we've discussed uh, many times um, within our group as well. Um, well, as an anthropologist, um, part of my work or a huge part of my work is besides interviews is also participant observation. Uh, so when I'm in Mexico, I hang out with people, I become part of their everyday life, of their routines, um, and, I, and I participate in, in their practices. Like I've worked as a beach cleaner, for example, um, and I, I cleaned beaches from, from Sargassum. Um, and during that, we have conversations, people share their thoughts and so on and so forth. Um, and then in, in the interviews that I conduct, I try, there's no, there's no set questionnaire, um, which I ask every, every person the same questions, but my goal really is to stimulate a narration and a conversation. So I try to come up with questions that are hopefully of interest to the person. And then 
um, get some longer answers and then continue from there and develop my answers while we are talking. So this is about the, I think, the anthropological approach to, to the people I'm working with. Um, and having said that, um, while anthropological research really is based on, on trust, like I, I need people in the field who trust me and who open their doors um, so that I can participate. And then, of course, in terms of research ethics, as you've asked, my, my priority really is to, to protect the people who are talking to me. Um, and that, well, one, one aspect I think really is to, to try and make people as unidentifiable as possible. Um, sometimes the communities we are working with are not super back. Um, so maybe with some research people could still find out whom we were talking to. So I think we really have to make sure that we do not reveal like delicate issues or if we are uncertain, ask the person what the person thinks about it. But then still, I think, for example, giving people a pseudonym is is worthwhile. Um, some people said to me in the field, no, no, use my real name. I don't have a problem with that. Still, I do. I will choose, or I have chosen pseudonyms. Um, that that that's a very powerful move too. So I think there's always these, like, um, well, these situations are ambivalent. Let's put it that way. There's not an anonymous answer, I guess. What what great research ethics are, but trying to protect the people who trust us is the most important to me. And then, what was really great during my last trip to Mexico. So I just returned two days ago, and it really helped to talk about some, some research results with the people in the field. So to better understand, is, is what I'm writing useful? Does it make sense? Can they, do they find themselves in my analysis? Is that, does it resonate with, with what they are doing, what they are thinking? So having this like reflexive process um, re really helped, um, I think, um, in this in this project, um, but of course, yes, we do have. As a German scientist, I work under European data regulations, as probably Florence um, you also do, and then we have the German Anthropological Association, which of, is of great help. They do provide guidelines uh, for for like good fieldwork practices, and so does the American Anthropological Association. Um, and I think reading these guidelines carefully is very helpful. And then our goal should be do no harm in field work. Um, and that could also mean discuss with the people what would be harmful. Because that's not necessarily reflected in these guidelines. So like talking about that with the people in the field and what does ethical research mean for them, I think that's very important also. Thank you so much for this really interesting answer, Laura. And we just heard a lot from you guys about being respectful to the locals that you are interviewing and giving back to them. And I mean, none of the, none of you are currently residents of the places that you did the interviews. And we want to like to know how did the residents receive your research? Not for, for the sake of you not being from there, did that impact your research at all? Well, people oftentimes wondered, don't they have enough problems with climate change in Germany too? So why, why is she here? And then, well, we often talked about 
well, this being a global phenomenon and sargassum being entangled um, with so many drivers and that we, well, it does, it happens in a very local context, but it's a global phenomenon. Um, so, so we often discuss that. I did experience a lot of openness and great hospitality in, in Mexico. People were really helpful. It was rather easy to get access to the field, which is not always the case in anthropological field work. Um, but people really communicated an interest in my work or in our work in general. I think that that applies for, for my own research, but also for our collaboration, that people really opened their doors um, and that we were always welcome. Um, I think one of the main reasons is that in what we did, trying to stimulate conversation, trying to take people's stories seriously, people felt to be seen, they felt um, to be treated with a lot of respect and that they count in the narrative on sargassum. Um, so everyday actors um, were suddenly uh, given the opportunity to share their experiences too. And I think that was very helpful um, for us. And then people also always agreed on that we need to know more about it. They oftentimes communicated that the knowledge on sargassum is not yet enough and that they really value all kinds of research and approaches that are trying to contribute to a better understanding um, of, of what happens. And people oftentimes said, please, well, please return, please don't give up, please continue with your work, um, it's important. And of course, we are very thankful and grateful for, for the hospitality and people's willingness to share their stories because without them, um, we, we'd be lost. Um, but of course, I well, in the field, I'm often seen as a person who could potentially connect people because I am or we were in touch with so many different stakeholders. And um, while people often understood this to, this to be a benefit, like us working as translators among different actors, as you said, Francisca, they are not all the time aware of what happens just next door, right? Is there a business? Is there an environmentalist? Is there a scientist working on this? So I think that was, well, that's seen as a benefit, I think, us working as translators or networkers in the field of sargassum. But then, of course, sometimes there are hopes communicated that we cannot fulfill. Um, one, one person said to me once, like, couldn't you call Bill Gates and ask him, to, to invest in solving the problem. And I, I can't. Um, so Bill Gates, if you listen to this podcast, reach out. Um, but well, jokes aside, it's absolutely understandable that different people have different hopes and that some are really, well, some really need help. Um, there are villages where it's now difficult to live in. And of course, these people are um, probably viewing researchers as as a window of opportunity to to um, well make others aware of of the difficulties they now face in their everyday life, um, but of course we we were not able able to do that. But I think in the way we communicate our research, the results is a, also a way to make knowledge about sargassum and also the podcast, for example, accessible to to broader society. And maybe then one day. Um, contributes to finding people who can invest in solutions and who are willing um, to do something and to help um, that I think at least the hope that we have um, or as, as a role I think that, that we have too. 
like not only doing this for the sake of fun. Um, I also uh, would like to add to uh, what Laura is saying. I think it's it's very important. Uh, I, I received that question from a lot of people. They were asking how what you are getting uh, from these answers are going to help us. And um, again, I think if we go back to the objectives of this research, uh, the objectives were to, uh, you know, amalgamate what we know about traditional science with this local knowledge uh, and try to direct better uh, the, the research that is being uh, currently in place. And also, at, at least on my behalf, because I work with the with the National Council for Science and Technology in Mexico, I can, you know, give these results to, you know, my bosses, and so they know as government what is going on with what people are experiencing. Um, uh, so I think that comes uh, with uh, trying to use this type of knowledge to uh, try to or incorporate this type of knowledge into making public policies so um i think and at the end uh this is what our hopefully our research is going to be used for you know to uh making better management decisions and, and public policies um and also uh one thing that i think it's interesting that we haven't talked about is that the approaches that we used to contact people were different in in us and mexico uh in florida uh to do the interviews and uh, justin can talk about that uh justin uh used a, a snow a snowball approach so uh he went to the florida keys and you know started interview one person and then going to another that that person recommend and so on and so on in Mexico, um, we did a, a very different approach where we first contacted, uh, you know, colleagues from universities, uh, NGOs, uh, different type of institutions, and probably because I'm, I'm from Mexico, so I probably I was more familiar to, you know, which institutions I can contact to get more participants into into this project. Uh, but I I thought that was absolutely necessary because we were able to set up interviews in advance, so you know people could take their time to receive us and answer these questions. Uh, and for example, for the fisheries villages, I think it was absolutely necessary to first introduce ourselves, first introduce the project to gain their trust and to gather gain their interest about this project. If you go to this village just like that, uh, I think it's, uh, and I think that's something that I learned from uh, Laura as well. I think it's just rude. Uh, you need to introduce yourself first and, and gain their trust. Uh, and uh, I think that was, you know, a key thing to uh, being able to talk with these fisheries uh, uh, villages for, you know, for a long time and getting getting really interesting information from these places. Justin, I don't know if you want to talk about that snowball approach and how you receive uh, the, you know, how the, the, the people perceive your work. 
Yeah. Um, I think it was generally well received. I, I mostly focused on on fishers again, kind of at docks, and that's how the snowballing started. Was getting people who were interested to chat while they were working for the most part, um, and that gave them an opportunity to to express what they're interested in. They also had the time to discuss. Um, though it did have this, you know, it creates a positive feedback loop a little bit towards moving towards fishers. So some of the times when I we needed to you know, integrate other sectors had to make very intentional shifts as far as like, uh, who to, who to talk to, um, in terms of the approach, um, yeah, I don't know in terms of the Florida keys, there's not as much of a, a large, maybe local connection that I knew of, or that we necessarily had in terms of, um, researchers that I knew that knew people who would be willing to talk all the time. Um, and also I think it's a little bit different perspective talking to people who are kind of working on the water day to day, who might not actually be already involved in science, because I think what was interesting, and I don't know if this is as much the case in Mexico, but in Florida, if you get fishers who are already working with scientists, uh, it's definitely a skewed population to the general fishing population. Um, in terms of what their responses are likely going to be, how they actually view things. Um, so if it's a little bit more of a random sample, which I aim to kind of start with, it, I think, gave probably a, a bit more balanced assessment. Though even, frankly, there, uh, people willing to talk to me already gives some degree of bias as to what they're likely to respond anyways. Um, so I thought that was interesting uh, in its own right. Uh, and I also think that's, that's another thing, and I, I'm mostly just speaking from my knowledge in Florida, there's a little bit... And I'm not a cultural anthropologist, so I just want to clarify this. This is just my experiences growing up and my kind of curiosities learning more about different parts of the U.S. as I've moved about around them and have noticed things and read about information on the history about why some of these relationships exist. But there's definitely a lot, there's a heavy skepticism of academics in a lot of these communities, um, if not resentment. Uh, and so I think figuring out that balance of how to try to not present in a way, uh, and this is something that the others have already been touching on, as very collegial, not this kind of air of superiority or anything like that, not this extractive kind of mindset. It's being able to present in a very um, equal footing and an express that's clear that this is going to be information that will be able to be used by scientists in a helpful manner uh, for the fishing community uh, and not to just basically extract information from them and then walk away and never talk to them again. Uh, and so, yeah, as far as exactly how the snowball approach differs in terms of responses to what was done uh, in Quintana Roo, I don't exactly know how much that would skew it, um, but it certainly probably does result in a little bit of, of differences there. Um, this is another thing uh, I just kind of want to go back, and I feel like this is an important thing to mention. Um, it was discussed that the like this entrepreneurial spirit got thrown around a bit, and I think admittedly that kind of went along with it, but I think there's an important distinction to make there because I think it's a little bit dangerous to claim that one area had more entrepreneurial spirit than the other. I don't, at its core upon reflection, I don't think that's a good thing to say or a fair thing to say. You're probably right that it might be actually stronger in Quintana Roo. Um, I think the difference there is actually a larger cultural difference in just the blanket trust in the private sector to solve issues more so than an actual entrepreneurial spirit. So I think it's, maybe a, a next level difference, uh, not exactly trusting 
and having a number of people who are trying to tackle the problem necessarily in Florida, as much as it is a belief that somebody will eventually do it on the private side and that those are the people who should be responding to this problem, even if there's no actual individuals that are identified or any actual higher motivation in that working group, um, if that makes sense. I just feel like that's an important difference to clarify versus that actual separation and entrepreneurial spirit between two regions. Because um, I think it speaks to the the culture at a at a broader level than actually individual motivation. Yeah. And um, if I just add to that last part of uh, the response that um, Justin sa just said, I think it's very important because also uh, Laura was specifying that 30% uh, of the participants in the US uh, uh, saw this as an opportunity. Well, I think it was 18% in Mexico who saw this as uh, as an opportunity. Uh, and I think that difference uh, has to do a lot with what we said at the very beginning of this uh, interview, is that the, the effects on people's lives that uh, we have in the US compared to Mexico are very different. So when, when something is affecting your well-being, uh, you're not going to see it as something good uh you know it's just it's just it's, it's just what it is so i think that's why we're uh, seeing a lot of uh, these uh, differences yeah and also i think when well as i said i worked as a beach cleaner for example and um thousands of people do every day on the shores of quintana roo and it's hard work it's really tiring wet sargassum is heavy and you have a job in the in the bright sunshine which which is not great it's hot it burns your skin and and it's a sisyphean task it's frustrating work you do it for hours and hours and hours and it just keeps coming and i think that's also um that also plays a crucial role that most of the people we've talked to have realized that this is a new normal. It will continue to come and then make them sad and worried about the future. And I think that also, as Judah just said, plays a crucial role in how can we view this as, a, as being an opportunity. Like, it's so much, it's overwhelming. We try so hard to do something, we invest, we think about it, we learn about it. Uh, well, we, we, we work hard every day and um, it keeps coming and it's becoming more. And some, some people I think we've talked to, at least that's how I felt, some have given up. Justin said, I think there was resentment. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the level of frustration um, and an insecure future is really high in that region. Those both really great points. Um, and I th thank you for bringing that up and kind of steering that a little bit more in that direction, because I think that's probably a huge role. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm also curious, even in, in Florida, how different the responses would have been if we had conducted them in July of 2016 or something like that, where there was a huge inundation in the middle of the inundation, as opposed to um, something that they knew basically becomes somewhat ephemeral, especially once you get into the winter months. Um, 
yeah. So, anyways, just want to say thank you. <laughs> okay, Justin, give me a second. <laughs> okay, Justin was born in Florida, and he now lives in uh, the middle of Pacific, west of uh, or east of uh, Challenger Deep, and um, and as a former full-time resident of Florida, what was your experience doing field work there? Um, it was it was really good. It was kind of nice to go back and be involved and talk to fishers, um, those who I kind of grew up around, while the exact people were a bit different. Um, there were even some people that I didn't interview, but, you know, it was interesting to see that I kind of recognized and knew from the general area kind of one going about that region. Um, so I felt it was, it was really nice to feel like, uh, that my, that the work was trying to help a community that I was familiar with, um, and grew up around. So I, I did really enjoy those aspects of it. Um, I think it was helpful in some regards in terms of having a baseline for understanding what people might say, um, whether it's, you know, who might reject an interview and give an off-color remark or who might actually be more willing to talk. And I think kind of being familiar with the area did help a little bit with that region um, in terms of trying to find interviews. So, yeah, I think I, I really enjoyed being able to be involved um, in something that felt very much at home for me. As opposed to most of my research has been in regions where I've been working, um, which have not been Florida for quite a while. <laughs> So definitely enjoyed that experience. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure um, if, I, if we need to have this question, but um, because I, I think we, it's um, a topic uh, that you already talked about. And um, do you see um, a social injustice and uh, an environmental ecological injustice in the in the problems of associated with sargasso. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you for that uh, very very important question. I think, well, in terms of social and environmental injustice, we've learned different things. Um, what I found very interesting was. Um, or is the ambivalent role, for example, that tourism plays. Because on the one hand, people kept telling us that tourism really contributes to climate change and that is a part of the problem uh, with sargassum. Yet on the other hand, in touristified areas, there's much more done about the problem. Um, so tourism here really also is, is uh, well, part of addressing it. I'm not saying it's part of the solution because we, I think we don't know yet what a solution would look like, but where there are tourists, sargassum is removed, which means that people are just less exposed to it um, while well, things are done about it. But in non-touristified areas, uh, which um, especially Judith and I found in the more southern parts of Quintana Roo, there are villages and there's no tourists and there will probably not be tourism in the future. But of course, they also receive a lot of sargassum and um, they are overwhelmed. Um, people really don't know what to do with all the sargassum. Um, 
So they don't really know about should we remove it and if yes, how can we, where should we place it, place it? where shouldn't we place it, do we receive any financial help? So they, they were concerned with very different questions than the people that live close to touristified areas. So I think the ambivalent role tourism plays here was really, really interesting. And then also, I think when we think about Mexico, the dominant discourse is about, is about the tourism industry, which makes sense because so many people financially depend on it. It's a very important um, economy there. But of course, we also have fishermen. And I think one story that was really, I think, uh, Judith, you would agree to this, but we were really well, emotionally touched was when you returned from Shiankan Nature Reserve and fishermen told you that in the past, they woke up, they entered the ocean and they went like fishing by hand because the water is so shallow and it was so crystal clear that they could just see their prey and just catch it. And it was an easy breakfast and they didn't need a boat. They didn't need um, like financial investments in, in fuel or the boat or a net. But now with sargassum in the, in the near coast waters, they cannot see the fish. The fish have left. Many of them died because sargassum takes out the oxygen out of the water. And now they need a boat. They need to make an investment. And they, they are facing a situation of food insecurity. And well, that's, that should be a concern too. And there's so much emphasis on, on the suffering tourists um, <laughs> experiencing a ruined holiday and uh, complaining on, on TripAdvisor that the Instagram pictures are less beautiful than they were expected to be. That's one concern, but we came across very, very more substantial concerns. And that is, can we continue living here in the future? And um, well, that's certainly something that, that, that we've learned. And I think sargassum, as an anthropologist, when I think about sargassum, I think about belonging and, and the question of who or what belongs where or where, 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 where one doesn't belong any longer. And then of course, there's always the question, does sargassum belong to our coast or not? Is it invasive or isn't it? So it's ambivalent itself. And then it's like, when we have a lot of sargassum, can humans continue living there? But it also poses the question of belonging of other non-human species. And as I'm well interested in in human non-human relations, but also in non-human non-human relations um, from an anthropological perspective, that that really poses the question of 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 belonging and who can be where or cannot be where. And I think that's um, well, that's an important aspect. Uh, that sargassum brings about these changes in in uh, like relations on among very different actors that are affected by it. So yeah, we did learn a lot about uh, social and environmental injustice and belonging. Yeah, absolutely agree. And and adding to what Laura uh, just said, um, I was also very. Um, well, not surprised, but it was striking to hear about what the Mayan community uh, told us about this as well. So basically in Felipe Carrillo Puerto, um, they told us that uh, there's a huge inequity. Um, and for example, they, they say that uh, 
the government is so focused on the touristic areas and you know try to resolve the problem so we can have more tourists but those places where no tourists are are completely abandoned by the government in this in this sense and uh, they are saying you know we have such a rich culture uh here and and uh, beautiful places to visit and the and the government could say okay let's let's put some resources to uh a, to try to push the tourists to the uh, mayan areas and try to push uh cultural uh tourism a uh, mayan cultural tourism so tourists can go to these areas because there are so many things to see there so and that's not happening just government is focusing in, in, in trying to remove sargassum from Cancun, Playa del Carmen, Tulum, and, and this potential that uh, these places have for uh, a cultural tourism, are, uh, it's completely, it's completely not, it's completely unexistent. And also uh, in Felipe Carrillo Puerto, they also told us that, so when there's a lot of sargassum in touristic areas like Cancun, Playa del Carmen, etc. When there's a lot of sargassum and these places are inundated by sargassum, places are very cheap and, and these um, all-inclusive resorts are very cheap. So like this, these places invite the, you know, the Mayans or other people from the South to go there to be, you know, to, to have like an internal or uh, national tourism. So there's more tourism or more, um, pushing towards uh, national tourists where this, when we have the beaches like that. And when the beaches are crystal clear, they are pushing the international tourism. So that's a huge, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just such a huge inequity. And um, that's something that uh, it was very voiced from the, the Mayan community in, in Felipe Carrillo Puerto. So that's another example of what Laura was just saying. Yeah, yeah I think that that really hints also at the question. I mean, the, the Mexican Caribbean is often associated with paradise, right? That's how it's sold in, in Germany, for example, but also in other other countries. And um, well, I think that's the no, a notion of paradise many tourists carry with them when they go there. But when we talk to people on the ground, we've learned it's also their paradise and they live there and they, they lose it. They, they have to deal with the algae. They have a brown tide. They have a changing ecosystem. Um, they found species that were never there before and that were likely to be carried along with sargassum. And I think that's when we talk about post-colonial relations, for example, this idea of paradise and how it's invoked by whom and who who is like not considered when we talk about paradisical con conditions, um, that, that's an, it's an interesting notion to, to think about these very um, powerful relations, I think. Thank you so much for sharing this. It makes me extremely sad hearing these inequalities and injustices, but they're so important to think about. And you're not the first people who talk about that locals don't 
even really believe anymore that the nature is for them and they just see it for tourism. I heard the same things in Turks and Caicos where a lot of locals think, oh, the, the clear water and the beautiful beaches, that's, that's there for the tourists to enjoy. And they forget that it's their home and it's their paradise first and foremost and that the tourists are just guests that they're inviting into it. Um, I have a question that, because I know that both in Florida and in Quintana Roo, um, a lot of families and friends, they go to the beach on, on the weekends and spend the whole afternoon on the beach. And it's a very much a social place where they do their social gatherings. Did you get any answers about how sargassum is affecting their social life in a way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, what we saw when we were asking about how sargassum is affecting the well-being or affecting their daily life, uh, absolutely. That was an answer that we heard from a lot of participants saying that they don't enjoy to the beach anymore or that the conditions of, uh, you know, having fun with the family have changed uh so yeah i mean just the the right to be in their beaches uh it's there but it's not the same anymore and they are uh they are not uh having this you know enjoyment of spending a, a picnic on the beach or uh when we have this problem um just um i was it's, it's not exactly related to this question but i just uh, thought about an answer uh, that we have from one participant that completely broke my heart that it was um so it was the beautiful beaches where i wanted my ashes to be spread upon when i died are sinking now in sargassum it's breaking it's heartbreaking so I think, uh, yeah, this type of answers from from people are are just telling you how how bad this problem is for them. Yeah, and you can definitely see here in Quintana Roo that when there's no sargassum, the beaches are full on a Sunday, and when there's sargassum, there's almost nobody there. So it really impacts a lot of families and people who who do their socializing here. Um, we heard a lot about your results and we talked for a very long time, which is really cool. Um, so as a last questions, question, I know you made the leaflets to present the results to the local community. Are you planning any other ways to present your results both to, to the scientific community and the local community? Uh, yeah, besides the leaflet, uh, we just gave a, a, a talk in a conference uh, last month in August. Uh, then we also very recently had a binational meeting with participants to talk about this, uh, about these results and ask for uh, feedback about these results and, and, and the whole process. Uh, we are right now working on the scientific paper. Uh, we hope that uh, I publish very soon, and I'm also working with a, a social sci a social scientist with a political science uh, student uh, in now reaching paper. 
Um, so uh, we hope that's also very um, available very soon. And that paper focuses uh, in those uh, differences by, by region. So in the Quintana Roo state, you know, it's divided by the North region where we have Cancun, Playa Calmen, uh, uh, all these very touristic places. And we have the Mayan area and the central area. And then we have the South area where we have places that, uh, like Mahawal, which is absolutely, you know, crushed by sargassum. So, um, and in that paper, we're going to talk about uh, what the needs uh, of public policy and government govern, governance are between these regions and how how they are very different different between between these regions. Um, uh, so yeah, and obviously this uh, was another great uh, window window to show our results and and share this uh, project with with the people that are listening. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us today and all that. And uh, as, as Francis, it's been long, but uh, we've heard of a lot of interesting things, and we really thank you for your time today. And once again, we want to uh, thank our sponsors, the uh, Florida International University, the Kimberly Green uh, uh, Latin American and Caribbean Center, and all that. They, they're always doing a lot of good things to hook us up and all that. And... Uh, Anyway, folks, we really appreciate you being on this day, and uh, y'all have a good afternoon. Thank you so much, everyone, and thank you, Justin and Laura, for being here as well with with us and presenting this this amazing project. Yes, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us and giving us so much of your time and of your information and knowledge. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in today and learning with us from our guests. If you want more information about what our guests talked about today, check our show notes for links and information in our archive. And don't forget to like and share our podcast with your friends. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us financially by becoming a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can support us and get the exclusive benefit of submitting questions for our interviewees before the interview. The Sargassum Podcast is produced by Marine Conservation Without Borders and is made possible with financial support and consideration from the Kimberly Green Latin America and Caribbean Center, U.S. Department of Education Title VI grant. It is produced by Jose Martinez, Alex Danielli, Cleo Maridakis, Francisca Elmer, and Alois Lopez, and is hosted by Robbie Figpen. Francisca Elmer, Jenna Contuccio, Florence Benez, Cleo Maradakis, and Paula Diaz. We will be back in two weeks with another exciting guest. The music for the podcast is from the song Then I Pray by Drizzle, the Ron Drama, an artist from Rotan. Follow him on Spotify and YouTube for my music. But for now, this is the full song Then I Pray.